You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There's so many horrible things that have happened in the world in the last week that I could rant about at the top of the show. Uh, the massacre in the offices of Charlie Hebdo in Paris last week, which was horrifying and distressing. The massacre in Nigeria by Boko Haram last week, which news is just getting out about horrifying and depressing. The Republican takeover of both houses of the U.S. Congress, Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader, horrifying and depressing, but I don't really want to talk about any of those things right now. I kind of need a pass on horrifying and depressing, particularly after last week's opening was horrifying and depressing. The news about Leela Aylcorn's suicide. So I just want to set the horrifying and depressing and big sort of world news or national news stories aside and focus on something personal and uh, something in my life, in my orbit uh, that you may be going through right now, actually. That you, that you may be experiencing this. It's January. I'm a regular gym goer. I go all the time. It is my antidepressant. I'm not a gym rat. I am not uh, all ripped and shredded, but I go to the gym and I exercise because if I don't get exercise, I get depressed. And you know, I have relatives who take antidepressants and I take uh, ellipticals and weights. I lift weights and I'm not sad. If I don't get exercise, I get really depressed. So I go to the gym. And there are new people at the gym in January. There are the New Year's resolvers. We see you. You pour into the gym. The regular times at which we could go to the gym and be assured of, you know, we would be able to get on this machine or that machine and, you know, it would be tolerably crowded. Now those times are really crowded and really packed. And you know, gyms are a racket. People buy gym memberships and then stop going. That's how gyms make their money. They don't make their money off the motherfuckers like me who show up. They make their money off people who, with the best of intentions, they buy a gym membership, they go for a week or two and then stop, or they go for a month or two and then stop. And when you talk to people who join the gym and then stop, invariably what plays into that decision to stop going are people like me, are the regulars. Many of them feel that they're being judged, that you know people are looking at how much or how little weight they're lifting and judging them or you know annoyed that they're not in shape. That's why they're in the gym. They're in the gym because they made a New Year's resolution to get in shape and they're not in shape and they feel people are looking at them or looking at their bodies and judging them for not having been in the gym years previously. Right? They let themselves get to this state where they need to get into shape and go to the gym. And I'm just here to tell you on behalf of all the gym regulars, we're not doing any of that shit. Really, the people who go to the gym all the time, of which I have to count myself one, the only people that we're looking at really and judging are ourselves. Nobody gives a shit how much weight anybody else is lifting. Honestly, nobody cares. That person you see who's piling all that weight on, when you come on next and you put a very, very little weight on, he doesn't or she does not give a fuck how little weight you're lifting. I promise you, nobody's thinking that. And as for this idea that, you know, people in the gym, the regulars are annoyed, we are. But not annoyed by you for being out of shape or newly arrived, just annoyed that it's kind of crowded and our routines are upset. 
that's it. It's just everybody has to like learn to share all over again. There are new people in the gym and you have to make a new routine. And I promise you if you stick with it, if you become one of the regulars, if you become part of the fabric of the gym that we're all working with and working around, that that stops. That annoyance stops. So my advice is if you are feeling self-conscious because people are annoyed, they're not annoyed at you personally. They're annoyed at this mass of new people of which you are apart. Stick with it. Keep coming. Outlast everyone else is going to drop off in two weeks or two months. All the newbies that these gyms, these health clubs in their business model rely upon dropping off. If you stick with it, if you're there in three months or six months, then you're a regular. On behalf of the regulars, to those of you who have just joined the gym, welcome. Forgive us if we get a little grumpy. Nothing personal. Not judging you. Just getting used to your presence. Stick around and you'll be one of the crew. Coming up on today's show, tons of your questions, plus Heather Haverleski, Ask Polly from New York Magazine, an advice columnist here for a second opinion segment all on today's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. Um, this is an 18-year-old bi girl from California. I've been practicing light BDSM stuff with my boyfriend for the past year. And last night, I was slapping his face because that's something I likes and he likes. But then after I did it a couple times, he gave me the signal to stop. But after that, I started crying because I felt like I had been abusing him and that I hadn't checked for his consent enough. So I was just wondering, do you have any ways that I can um, get over not feeling guilty if I've accidentally passed my partner's limit? And also, what are some nonverbal signals of consent that I should be looking for next time? We were all 18 years old once, and your call reminds us of what it, what it was like to be a little dramatic and a little too much still in the throes of puberty and hormones and everything, not to minimize or diminish your honest and heartfelt reaction to your boyfriend's momentary distress. But you need to chill the fuck out about what happened. You've been doing BDSM for a year. Slapping was an established, mutually pleasurable component uh, in your BDSM repertoire, this was something that you'd done before and that he enjoyed. But this time, it wasn't working for him and he safe-worded his way out of it. That's BDSM working the way it's supposed to work. Things get established and are consented to and are enjoyed. That doesn't mean you're going to enjoy all of those things always, whether you're talking about BDSM or any other kind of sex. And you know, if someone initiates something that in the past that you've enjoyed – and you want to tap out, whether, again, you're talking BDSM or just plain old vanilla sex, that doesn't mean that you've been violated. It doesn't mean you've necessarily brutally violated anyone. So you did nothing wrong. You really have nothing to weep about here unless you hauled off in the moment and having playfully slapped him before, lightly slapped him before, decked him, unless you turned the volume up on the kind of slapping that you were engaging in to an extent that – it freaked him out and it you know, violated his boundaries. You did nothing wrong. You have nothing to weep about and you have nothing to apologize for, really. Except, you know, a road apology. Oh, I'm sorry, and shift to some other BDSM activity, or just take a break and and watch a black mirror. Right? Signs of nonverbal consent. <sighs> Varsity level sex, right? A a any sex. You're always, you should always be looking for signs of consent verbally and non-verbally. If you have verbal consent, you can dive right in typically and go for it. Again, you don't want to turn the volume up way up 
with someone that you've been with before on something they enjoyed before without doing that very slowly with someone who's brand new. Even if you have their verbal consent, you do need to tiptoe up to the things you want to do. Take it slowly. Don't get very aggressive. You don't rush them, rush it because what if they want to bail? And then that's verbal consent. As for looking for signs of nonverbal consent, err on the side of verbal consent always, which is easy to do in BDSM. It's easy to do in regular sex. Just say what you're going to do, then say what you're doing, then say what you did. That's dirty talk, right? I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I just fucked the shit out of you. Dirty talk. Easy, right? People go, oh, I don't know what to say. Say what you're going to do. Say what you're doing. Say what you did. And you can do that with BDSM too. You can look at him in the moment if you're worried, particularly, you know, if you're going to slap him again in the future, which is, again, something he's enjoyed in the past. Now that you know that there may be times when that's not going to work for him because maybe he has a headache, maybe whatever. It's just not going to work for him in that moment. Now that you know that, you say, in a sexy way, I'm going to slap your dirty little pervert face, right? And if he flushes, if he inhales in a sexy way, if his dick gets harder, there's your nonverbal consent, right? If he looks, if he tenses up, if he makes a uh, face, there's your nonverbal withdrawal of consent, right? And you can just solicit him. So, so talk, 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 particularly when you're young, you're only 18, young, relatively inexperienced. Doesn't matter if you've only been doing it for a year, you are still relatively inexperienced when it comes to sex generally, BDSM sex also particularly err on the side of verbal consent and Tell them what you're going to do. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them what you did. That's dirty talk. It's also a great way to solicit their consent verbally and non-verbally throughout the scene. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bisexual female living in the Northeast. And I'm calling about something I can only really describe as baby mama drama. Uh, My new boyfriend, who I've known for about five months, is a father of two. And his ex, who he's been separated from for a little over a year now, has found my Tumblr blog where I've posted some PG-13 nude photos, not showing my face, and I think they're rather tasteful in my opinion. Um, And I've shared some sexual fantasies and some experiences. This isn't a blog I share with people I know, but I did meet my boyfriend through this blog. His ex is now saying that I'm not to be around their children, and she doesn't believe that I'll be a proper role model, which I strongly disagree. Um, but my main concern is that if I were to stay with my boyfriend, that his visitation with his kids could potentially be jeopardized. Um, in legal terms, I'm not too sure how this would all stand in court. So I'm curious if you have any insight on this issue. Could my new blog potentially be a negative factor when custody is brought to the table? I wouldn't want my sexual openness to become between a father and his children but I do care for him very strongly and I definitely see a future with him. So I'd love your advice and definitely would love your opinion. This could be a problem for your boyfriend. It really depends on the sex negativity of the judge that he winds up standing in front of. If his wife, ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, whatever the fuck she is, decides to make an issue of this in a custody dispute, courts, judges, they tend to be older they are not down with the Twitter. They are not down with the Tumblr. They are not down with Snapchat and the new exhibitionistic culture, right? Where you can be a good and decent person but also share your fantasies and some discreet photos online and have this – you have your sex life and your erotic life have this online presence 
and you have this sort of dual persona, right? The good and decent person you are when you're not having sex and the dirty little minx you are when you are having sex and that you might want to archive some of that. Like you could wind up – he could wind up standing in front of a judge with his shitty ex-wife who doesn't get that and thinks anyone who would do that, anyone who would do porn, which is maybe what he thinks that you're doing or she thinks that you're doing – couldn't be trusted around children because you're a dirty sex-having monster and children aren't safe with dirty sex-having monsters, which is ridiculous because children are the product of dirty sex-having monsters. There's no kids if there's not dirty sex-having by dirty sex-having monsters, right? And most sex is for pleasure, not for kids. And this extension of your sex life, this Tumblr, is a pleasurable sexual pursuit for you, blah, blah, blah. A judge might not get that. So, yeah, there is a risk here. I can't tell you there isn't. My advice would be to start documenting everything. If she's making threats, if she's making them via email or text to save copies of everything. And you might want to think about pulling down your Tumblr, which you shouldn't have to do. You shouldn't have to do that, right? But you might want to do it to deny her, the ex, this tool, this stick to beat your boyfriend with in a custody dispute. Right now, it's a tool that she can retaliate against him for the crime of having moved on, the crime of having a a girlfriend. Maybe she's angry and bitter. Maybe he treated her badly and she's lashing out in a stupid, unfair, but perhaps on some level understandable way if he was awful. Maybe she's retaliating from a place of hurt. Doesn't make it any less shitty, right? So you might want to think about taking it down and then you can create a new one with no pictures. And you might want to ask your boyfriend how the fuck his ex found your Tumblr, which you've only shared with a few friends. How did she find it? Not saying he showed it to her, but maybe he blabbed about it or bragged about it. Or maybe he posted about it himself to his own social media platforms. Maybe he told mutual friends who then told her, However, it got back to her that you had this online sex presence. You need to control for that going forward, particularly if you're going to pull it down and start a new one. You need to make sure that however it is that she found out about your previous sex tumbler, she doesn't find out about the second iteration. You need to make sure that he doesn't give it away a second time. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 26-year-old man living in a major city uh, in a state where my marriage just became legal. Um, I'm a teacher at a public Uh, high school for the arts, uh, where there are a lot of gay students who are out. And I'm really proud of the school because it's a very safe place for uh, LGBT youth. I'm calling about one of my students who uh, just confided in me today that his parents discovered he was gay when they recently got a hold of his cell phone. I don't know how they didn't already know that he was gay, but that's beside the point. Uh, He proceeded to tell me that they were very upset and decided to pull him out of school immediately and enroll him at a Catholic school. And they're doing everything that they can to cut him off from all of his friends at his current school, um, including taking away his phone, etc. So my heart's breaking for this kid. He's a really good kid. Um, As he tells me that his parents think Catholic school is going to teach him how to be a man or something like that. Something very similar happened to me when I was his age. So I'm telling him about my experience and assuring him that it gets better and try not to cry while I give him good advice and uh, do what I can to make him feel like it's going to be okay. But I'm heartbroken because it feels like there's really nothing I can do. I'm so angry with his parents who in this day and age must know better. They told him he wasn't allowed to tell anybody, friends or teachers, um, why he's being taken out of school. So none of his friends even know that he's leaving. But anyway, that tells me that they know that they should be embarrassed by what they're doing to him. 
Anyway, she's only going to be in my class for another couple of days, and I want to know what you would do if you were me. I desperately want to help, but I feel helpless that there's nothing I can do. I want him to have somebody to talk to, but if I try to stay in touch with him and his parents find out that his adult teacher is sending him messages and encouragement, I'm sure they would go batshit. So is there anything that you would do, um, or if all I can do is give him my best advice and encouragement before he leaves, what should I say? Let's recall first what Leela Aylcorn's parents did to her when she came out to them as trans and then came out at her school as uh, a gay boy, which is all she felt safe coming out as at school at the time, although she was uh, a trans girl. Uh, they pulled her out of school. They isolated her. They took her phone away. They cut her off from contact with all of her friends and all of her support networks. And this isolation contributed in a huge way to Leela Aylcorn's depression and her misery and ultimately her death, her suicide. She stepped in front of a truck. In my opinion, her parents threw her in front of that truck. So this kid in your class, his parents are doing to him everything that Leela Aylcorn's parents did to her. His parents are doing to him what, again, we goddamn well know, doubles that queer kid, that gay, lesbian, bi, or trans kid's already quadrupled risk of suicide. This kid, this boy, is now at eight times greater risk of suicide thanks to the actions, the unloving actions of his parents. You know it, right? You go to the administration at your school and you tell them that you know this. You should, in a perfect world, you, as a responsible adult, the administrators of your school, would be in a way liable because you know this dangerous thing is being done to this child. In a perfect world, you would be a mandated reporter. You would have to go to social workers or call Child Protective Services and rat on this kid's parents. But we don't live in a perfect world for LGBT kids yet. However, your school is supportive, tolerant, down with the, the queer kids. Your school knows that what's being done to this kid is wrong. You know what's being done to this kid. Go to the administration of your school and ask them, if you can reach out to and speak to this kid's parents, what do you got to lose, right? If you have the administration's backing, if you're not going to lose your job, to go to that kid's parents and say your – to say what my mother said to the parents of a queer 15-year-old who confided in me that his parents were being horrible to him, threatening to pull him out of school, threatening to isolate him, threatening to cut him off in contact with all of his friends. My mother, I got him on the phone. He told me what was going on. I got his mother's phone number and I had my mother call his mother. And what my mother said to his mother was, you're doing everything right. If what you want is your kid to run away from home, if what you want is your kid to be engaged in survival prostitution, if what you want is for your kid to commit suicide, if what you want is for your kid to perhaps contract HIV and be dead by age 30, you're doing everything right. So you just keep doing that if that's what you want. That's what my mother – my mother was really good at putting a knife into somebody and turning it, right? She was really good with that guilt and that was scalding and that was exactly what that kid's parents needed to hear. They needed to know not only that they were doing everything wrong but there were people out there who knew that they were doing everything wrong and that there was some sort of cosmic accountability, that they were being judged. Call this kid's parents. Scream and yell at them. Risk a scene, an unpleasant, loud, horrible scene with his parents. 
Maybe you'll get through to them. My mom turned that kid's parents around in a phone call. Maybe you'll get through to them. Maybe you'll break through their denial. Go to his parents with printouts of studies from the UCLA, Williams Institute, from the CDC, showing that kids whose families are hostile, kids whose families reject them and don't support them when they come out as lesbian, gay, bi, or trans, eight times greater risk of suicide, much higher risk of suicide for trans kids, higher risk for depression, alcoholism, sexual risk-taking. That they are doing everything wrong. to protect their kid from what? Being who he is? They are endangering their child. They are potentially throwing their kid in front of a truck too. Why don't you bring a printout of Leela Elkhorn's story and highlight everything that her parents did that this kid's parents are doing as well. Even if he winds up being sent to that Catholic school, which because you called a couple of days ago has probably already happened – don't assume that there aren't queer kids in that Catholic school, that he won't find peers. I was a queer kid in a Catholic school once myself. At a much worse time for queer kids in all schools, Catholic and otherwise, he will find hopefully other kids. Don't assume that there aren't good and decent adults in that school. There very well may be. But my advice to you is to get into this kid's parents' face, even if it doesn't have an impact on them now, even if it doesn't change anything. They will know that there are people out there who know that they're doing everything wrong. They will know that you're out there holding them cosmically accountable for what they're doing to their kid. And that kid, more importantly, perhaps most importantly, will know that there are sane adults out there in the world who will come to his defense and that there is a place for him and a community for him. And there are people out there who love and support him for who he is and are willing to take risks professionally, emotionally, to love and support him for who he is. And those people aren't his parents right now, but those people may be his parents someday. I really think that one of the chief benefits of the It Gets Better project for a lot of queer youth who've watched the videos, who have parents who are rejecting them, is the just the number – and not talking about the corporate videos, not talking about Google's video or the president's video or – politicians' videos. I'm talking about the videos made by individuals, by lesbian, gay, bi, and trans adults about their experiences, how they made it better for themselves, how their families came around. I really think that that's often the most important takeaway for a lot of these kids is they see adult queer people whose parents had the same reaction that theirs are having now when they themselves came out. They see adults talking about how when they were 15, their parents pulled them out of school, took their phones away, isolated them for their friends did all the shitty wrong things and whose parents are with them in their videos, whose parents are sitting next to them on sofas and living rooms, whose parents look into the camera and look at their kid and apologize for what they did to their kid when they were a 15 year old and coming out. And that is, I think really important for young queer kids to see young queer kids whose parents are being shitty. Like this kid's parents are being shitty to him right now to know that it not only gets better because there's a community out there for you, it not only can get better because you're going to find people who love and support you, it can get better because your parents can get better. That your parents can come the fuck around. Because mine did. Because so many of us, our parents did. And your parents can too. And it's worth sticking around for that. You can see it on the faces of adult LGBT people in these videos that they are delighted to still be there, but there's a particular delight in accepting your parents' apology 
or how they treated you when you were 15 and coming out? Hi, Dan. My uh, bisexual uh, lady best friend is getting married in the New York City area in the uh, late spring. And I was just wondering if you had any ideas for some uh, sex-positive bachelorette party activities or entertainment. Of course, the first bit of advice I have to give you is to stay the fuck out of gay bars, okay, with your bachelorette parties. Not that we don't love you. Not that we don't want to come to the wedding. Not that we won't do your hair, design your dress, do the flowers. Just please don't come to particularly sleazy gay bars. If there's a big cha-cha palace where everybody dresses crazy and dances all night, yeah, go there. Don't go to a dark and sleazy gay bar where men make out in the corner uh, for your bachelorette party because that's just rude. That would be like guys in leather and assless chaps showing up at your wedding to make out in the corner at the reception. Kind of rude, right? My other bit of advice about my, – my standard line about bachelorette and bachelor parties is I, I'm opposed to them on principle. Because what they say is, oh, you're getting married. This is the end of fun. Here's your last chance to enjoy yourself. Here, Freedom's over. No more sexual adventures. No more crazy nights out with your friends. Life ends. So you might as well get out there tonight and, I don't know, go see a male stripper. Go get a lap dance from a, a, a girl stripper. Get in, drunker than you've ever gotten. Like – the message that this sends about marriage is bad for marriage. And it's also not true about marriage. If we tell people that marriage is the end of sexual adventure and the end of fun, people go into marriage determined to shut sex down and stop having fun. And that is consciously or subconsciously they will do this. And that is the wrong thing to do because that incentivizes getting the fuck out of that marriage. If you can never have fun again – if the message being sent to you by your stupid bachelorette party is you can never have fun again because now you're married, when you want to have fun again, how do you get to have fun again? You get unmarried, right? And I know that there are people out there who you know, there's tons of sexist kind of echoes and imageries in a traditional opposite sex marriage, right? Dad giving away bride, right? Dad walking the bride down the aisle and handing her off like a baton which is the wrong kind of phallic imagery, handing her off like a donut to the groom as if she's like, it's a property exchange. Like that's what that meant. That's what that means. And there are people who have big traditional weddings who do that and are moved by it. And they are not invested in the sexism. They are not invested in the idea that a woman is property. They don't believe it. It's an egalitarian marriage of equals, but they are just going through the motions of these rituals without living their lives based on the idea that a woman is a property. So there are people out there who can have a bachelor or a bachelorette party without actually believing that marriage has to mean the end of fun, right? They're just having the ritual of the bachelor or bachelorette parties. But still, on principle, they drive me crazy because half my mail is from married people whose relationships are falling apart because they don't have fun anymore, because they're not sexually connected anymore because they look at each other and what they see is not my partner in crime, not the person with whom I have sexual adventures, but the reason I can't have sexual adventures anymore. The reason I can't have my fun little quote unquote crime sprees anymore. No partner in crime because no crimes because we have to stay home and be married and boring and it's over and dead fun, fun over and dead. So I'm against bachelor and bachelorette party. So I don't know how to tell you to have a fun one. I've never had one. Right? I consider my marriage our ongoing, everlasting bachelor party because we are still fucking having fun. 
What can you do to sex up a bachelorette party? That's the question. Tech savvy at-risk youth are putting a gun to head and making the answer. I don't know. Hire a stripper. Do some blow. Get a limo. Wear stupid flashing lit up penises around your necks and run around the gay neighborhood like all the rest of them. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old woman calling from Western Canada. I'm straight and I'm in a relationship with a man my age. We have been back together for about a year and a half, but we have a long history having met 15 years ago in college. And we dated for a couple of years back then, stayed in touch all these years. I know he's the love of my life, but we are having a sexual problem that I don't know what to do about. When we got back together, we were living five provinces apart. We saw each other every couple months and the sex was good. It's never been great, but everything else is great. And we want to build a life together and have kids. So that was a price I was okay with paying. Um, well, six months ago, he moved across the country and moved in with me. He sold basically all his worldly goods in the process, quit his job, started a new career here. He's uprooted his whole life for me. And when he first moved here, we were having sex every week or two, not super often. Um, but after a couple of months, his sex drive disappeared completely. And I have had sex with him once in the last four months. He just did that because I asked him to, not because he was into it. It lasted about five minutes. It was totally humiliating, um, and it's pretty hard to see how much he really doesn't want to have sex with me. I have been really resentful about this toward him. He has talked to me about it reluctantly, admits it's nothing to do with me. He's attracted to me. He thinks I'm beautiful. He just has no interest in sex in general. He can't make his dick get hard. <laughs> This has been a problem for him before in past relationships. He just didn't want to tell me about that beforehand because who wants to admit they have no sex drive? So I feel like I've been duped. We want to have kids. We were talking about getting pregnant in about a year. And now I'm left wondering how he thinks that will happen if he won't come anywhere near me with his dick. I love him. I don't want to break up with him. I don't have a very high sex drive myself, so I don't need often to have sex. But I feel like... I've been duped into a sexless relationship because he waited to tell me about this problem until he'd already uprooted his life. He can't go back. Um, and I feel like I'm getting too old to be totally picky about a partner if I really want to have a family because I'm almost 35. Um, and if I broke up with him, I'd be starting from scratch. So my question is, how do I go forward from here? Do I suggest Viagra? Could this be depression? He's been tested for testosterone, and apparently his levels are fine, so it's not that. He doesn't seem to be taking much action to solve this problem, but I think he would try if I explain how important it is. Um, I think I would even be okay with a companionate relationship with him if I was allowed sex on the side. It's just um, if we could crank out a couple of kids first, and I don't know how to get around starting a family without any sex. So um, that's always been the biggest dream of mine to have a family. So please help. <laughs> You have every right to dump this guy, right? He did not disclose something to you that he was morally, ethically obligated to disclose to you, that he has zero interest in sex. Perhaps he's asexual. Perhaps he should get over to the Asexual Visibility Network, AVN, and take the test. See if he's asexual. Sure sounds like he might be. And there's nothing wrong with being asexual unless you – don't disclose that fact and marry a sexual or get into a relationship with a sexual under false pretenses. His not disclosing to you in advance that he has no sex drive would be right up there with me marrying a woman without telling her that I am a fag and I have no interest in her sexually. 
It is dishonest and it is deal-breaker territory. That said, you love him and you could wrap your head around a companionate marriage and you could see partnering with him and being parents and having a family together and having sex on the side, having lovers. And all of that's uh, fine and dandy. Uh, you need to talk to him about that. Unfortunately, there are some people out there who don't want to have sex with their partners but don't want their partners having sex with anyone else. They want their partners to be monogamous, which I don't understand. How does monogamy work when you're not having sex? I need you to promise only not to have sex with me, which actually means you can have sex with anybody else anytime. Just only don't have sex with me. It's, it's crazy. It's controlling and insecure bullshit. You know, people who have no interest in sex, who have a partner who has interest in sex are afraid that if their partner goes out and fucks other people, that they may form a, uh, an emotional attachment and leave them. That's definitely a possibility. That's a possibility even if you are having sex with your partner. And your partner may leave you because you're not having sex with them. They're, you're always at risk of being left. You don't want to fuck your partner? Let your partner fuck other people. They might leave you. They might fall in love with somebody else, but they might leave you anyway because they want to have sex. All that said, your, your call really made me think of Stephanie Kuntz's book, Marriage, A History from Obedience to Intimacy or How Love Conquered Marriage. It's a terrific book and, and one of the things I love about the book is that Kuntz argues persuasively, she demonstrates that traditionalists, conservatives – used to oppose marrying for love because love is unstable. Sexual passion is unstable. We have placed at the center of our marriages intimacy, love, passion when marriage used to be a contract and a, and a business arrangement um, and about you know producing children and legitimate offspring. But you weren't supposed to be in love with your husband or wife romantically because that shit comes and goes. And if you marry for love, you will divorce when love – Evaporates. So social conservatives 300 years ago were just dead set against this idea that young people should marry for something as unstable as sex and romantic attraction. How ironic that here we are now, right? And the marriage that you're contemplating, a companionate marriage, which just seems to so many people radical and mind-blowing, was for conservatives 300 years ago what marriage meant. That was traditional marriage, what you're contemplating having with this guy. No sex, no passion, partnership, children, family. Put it on the table. See what he says. If he's a crazy, don't want to have sex monogamist who doesn't want you having no sex with anybody else, then you probably have to end it. As for making a couple of babies, he's fucked you a few times. He's obviously not interested in sex for sex's sake, but he may be able to get it up long enough to blow a few loads to make a couple of kids. Something also to talk to him about. You fucked him, right? It works when it must, when you insist, and it could work to make a baby or two. There's also artificial insemination. There's also a friend who can step in and be a sperm donor. There's also adoption. The path to parenting with this man, if that's ultimately what you decide that you want to do in a companionate marriage, doesn't lead exclusively through his balls. But that path can lead you into doctor's offices and adoption agencies and the beds of friends. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy at Rescue. I am at the moment eight months pregnant. Um, my, uh, I'm uh, 28 straight, very vanilla, my husband and I, sorry about that. But, but we do have a, a, a very satisfying sex life and we're very happy with it. My question is actually about um, for when after the baby arrived. What I'm actually worried about is 
you're supposed to sleep with the baby in your room for the first six months. What they think is the safest thing, um, you know, to, to protect against SIDS and things like that. Um, so obviously we'll be doing that. Um, but I kind of wondered whether what you do when you want to have sex. Um, I mean, I know a baby isn't that aware. And so part of me thinks, you know, as long as we're not kind of you know, screaming the, the ceiling down or anything like that, probably she wouldn't really notice. She's not going to have any idea of what it is that's going on. And I don't think that would be a scarring experience. But on the other hand, is that a bit weird? Like, you know, I, I, a long time ago, I remember I had a I had a boyfriend who had a dog and he used to shut the dog out of the room if we were going to have sex because he'd be like, oh, it's just weird, you know, there's someone else in the room. I've never heard anyone discussing this before. So really, I wanted to know what, you think like is it weird to have sex with your babies in the room i mean obviously once they get old enough to you know be kind of sitting up and taking an interest that would that's no longer appropriate but that's fine because after six months of their life they're in their own room anyway anyway i'd be really interested to hear what you thought and whether any of the at-risk youth have confronted this uh, issue or what you and terry did when dj was little thank you very much i hate to go all history of marriage and family on you guys this week but uh, we didn't used to live in suburban ranch homes or apartments with multiple bedrooms that for most of us, you know, if you weren't royalty, if you weren't the Lord of the manor in a little hovel or in a little farmhouse, there was one bed that the whole family slept in. And so if mom and dad were going to have sex and try to make more little farmhands and laborers to sow and harvest barley for the Lord of the manor, they had to fuck in front of their children, Right. All through colonial times, Victorian tenement flats, people were fucking and having sex with much older children than zero to six months in the bed with them. So I don't think you're going to destroy your baby's brains by having sex in your bed, even with your baby in the bed. Some people do that co-sleeping thing. I think that's insane. But, you know, the infant's on the bed right next to you and if you guys are – quietly, delicately having mellow, slow, don't want to wake the fucking baby, sex next to that baby, the baby's not going to be harmed by it. As a parent, I have to cop to the fact that there were times, uh, we very early on got our son into his own room, and he always had his own crib, but there were times we were on the road in a hotel, and he was in a crib on the other side of the room, and we just seized the opportunity. When your child is that young, the sex ain't going to be great and it ain't going to be frequent and you don't want to pass up on opportunities when they present themselves. Not just logistical opportunities but also you're physically and emotionally up for it opportunities. The logistics is a whole other piece and then you may have the time to have sex but you may not have the energy or want to be touched. And so when those moments present themselves, seize them. If you're squicked out because the baby's in the room, go fuck in a different room. You aren't in a crib. Your bed doesn't have bars. If the baby's in the bed or the baby's in the crib in your bedroom and asleep and you don't want to disturb the baby, go fuck on the kitchen floor. Go fuck in the living room. Go fuck on the sofa. Go fuck in the shower. Mom and dad, you can go places on your own. But just be sure to keep fucking. As soon as you're up for it, and it may take longer than six months. Some cases it does. This may be a non-issue. Your kid may be in a crib sleeping mostly through the night before you're even ready to start having sex again. But when you are ready, seize the opportunity. Kid in the room or you two getting the fuck out of that room where the kid is, whatever you're more comfortable with. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old woman in a monogamous uh, relationship with a 31-year-old guy. We're madly in love. We've been going out for six months. And um, I recently discovered a bottle of Cialis. Actually, I found a prescription in his, uh, his drawer or wasn't snooping. I just came across it totally randomly. And I'm just wondering, what, what are the boundaries on asking about that? Because we're really open, we're really close, very sexual. And um, I kind of feel that he doesn't need to be on it. I think he takes it once in a while to, you know, have amazing sex for a couple of days straight. And I just feel like, I don't know what the side effects are, but I don't want him to be enhancing himself when he really doesn't need to on a regular basis. And I'm really open about things. I love to to talk and discuss things, but I'm not sure if it's really not necessary um, to bring that up with somebody when you're in a really close sexual relationship and you talk about everything. So uh, what do you think? All right, I'm dragging you on to the show for just a minute. Nancy, Nancy Hartunian, the producer of the podcast. Hi, because everybody. Usually we're kind of roughly in agreement about stuff, but we had really different reactions to this call. I had a really negative reaction to this call. You know, she's with this guy for six months. They're madly in love. Okay. But she seems to think that she, A, at six months, has a right to know everything, and she's aggrieved that she doesn't have access to his full medical files. <laughs> And that he's withheld this information from her uh, and that's not OK. And also she thinks at six months she has a right to dictate to him what medicines he takes. You know, what happened to my body, my choice? If he wants to take Cialis for his own peace of mind or for whatever reason, what right does she have to make an issue of it? OK. I could relate to her perspective just because I just feel like having secrets is so poisonous. Not that he's keeping the secret from her. But that she knows this thing about him. And so now she she's got this little kernel where she's wondering, like, why does he need this drug to make him hard? And that would make thinks, me curious. But too. she thinks he's the one with the secret. And it's just that at six months, you haven't disclosed everything. I've been with Terry for 20 years. I haven't disclosed everything to Terry <laughs> at 20 years. You tell me everything. I do tell you everything. Please don't ever rat me out to my husband. <laughs> uh, it'll be the end of everything. But, you know, people early in a relationship, it's the, you know, dance of the seven shitty veils. It's the, it's the long, slow disclose, right? It's the discovery process. And she, you know, obviously he wasn't going to great lengths to hide the Cialis from her. If the prescription was lying around in a place that she had access to or might – go for some reason, although she said a drawer. People usually aren't digging through each other's drawers at six months. But th- th- her reaction is so agreed. Like there's this tone of grievance that I think is really misplaced and really got under my skin. I didn't hear the tone of grievance. I I think she's curious. It's not a big deal for her to say, hey, I came across your prescription for Cialis. Why, why are you doing that? Your dick gets hard just fine. Like I'm just wondering what's up. Well, maybe his dick gets hard just fine because of the Cialis. Yeah, but she said somehow she knows he only uses it every now and again. And what's wrong with that? Maybe he had ED problems in the past and it's sort of, uh, you know, a talisman for him or, you know, the placebo effect. Every once in a while he pops a pill and, you know, dicks are Tinkerbell and it helps him believe. And and, and that's a huge part of it for guys. If guys think they're going to get hard, they're going to get hard. When guys don't think they're going to get hard, they sometimes are worried that they might not get hard. They sometimes have a problem. And some guys keep... These drugs around just so that they can have that crutch, that they can have that even if all they're getting out of the placebo effect. And, you know, I guess you're right. She should talk to him about it because she can't pretend not to know something that she does know. 
and now she knows it. But she can't tell him, you know, she shouldn't lecture him about the side effects and she has to take his answer for an answer. His body, his dick, his choice. Yeah, as long as she's not judgy about it, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it. If she presents it like, I know this terrible thing about you and or, I'm worried about or you. why haven't you disclosed this terrible thing yeah. to me in the past? It's not a problem. It literally isn't a problem. It's not like he's withholding information about a sexually transmitted infection that he has or a wife and other family he has or the fact that he's asexual or gay. Like this isn't necessarily something that at six months you have a right or a reasonable expectation to have disclosed to you that he has maybe he has a medical issue around ED, hence the prescription. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think that either one of them has done anything wrong. I don't think it would be wrong for her to satisfy her curiosity. And also, remember, like, we ladies, we're just curious about dicks. <laughs> you know, I think it's pretty interesting that you can take a drug that gets you a boner. So, that you know, she might just feel curious and want to know what's up with it. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. As long as she's not coming at it from a judgy place, I agree. But you don't think – you didn't get from her call that she is coming at it from a judgy no, place? Judging him for not having already disclosed at six months that he has a Cialis prescription, judgy about side effects, judgy about the reasons he might be taking it? No, because I mean she just, just – I believe her when she says she wasn't snooping. And so if you found some medicine, no matter what it is mm – -hmm. The, of your new partner, you'd be curious. And then now she's got this terrible secret inside of her and she so, needs to get it out. And also not make it about her. Some people will, when they find the prescription, instantly go to what? I'm not – you're not attracted to me. You're not aroused by me. Mm -hmm. I don't get you hard. You have to take a pill. And that's not what it's about. Yeah. This can be a medical issue. And you would think that women would, would, would get this. Like some women don't get wet. Easily or automatically and use lubricants for regular old vaginal intercourse with a man to whom they are attracted. And this is just the male equivalent. Yeah. And she even says that it allows him to have these amazing weekends where he fucks her for two days straight. That doesn't sound like a problem to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to slap that pill bottle out of his hand. <laughs> Enough with these awesome sex-filled weekends with all this hard cock. Enough. Can't we just go to brunch? But okay, so because I do, actually do not know anything about Cialis, I really don't. Um, so maybe you know, maybe she she just is worried. I mean, if there are side effects, I don't know if there are. Then she's concerned about him. She loves him. She doesn't want him to do something for her that could possibly harm him. That's that's how I read her. Okay. Anxiety well, we there. obviously have very different reactions to this call. That's why I wanted to drag you non-consensually. <laughs> you were clearly making non-verbal, non-consent <laughs> signs because you didn't really want to come My on the show. My pupils were not dilated. <laughs> not flushed. You didn't look aroused by it when I suggested <laughs> that you answer this question with me. But thanks for jumping on. As much as I like to pretend that I am the only advice columnist and advice podcaster on the planet, that is not true. There are tons of other advice columnists and advice podcasters out there in the world. And every once in a while, we like to invite one on the show for what we call second opinion. Heather Haverleski writes the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine's The Cut. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine and Book Forum, and she's the author of the memoir Disaster Preparedness. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Heather. So how long have you been writing uh, Ask Polly? About two and a half years, almost. Oh, um, you're just a baby advice columnist. I'm a baby advice columnist. Well, you know, I... I've sort of been dabbling in offering terrible unsolicited advice to people for <laughs> decades. Which is the only qualification you really need for this gig. There's no advice columnist degree program or certification or PhD. You just have to be a bossy cow like me. 
Yes, exactly. And I'm definitely a bossy cow. I had a blog for years that where I would say, I, you know, I kind of ran out of things to write on the blog. And uh, so I started to say, people send me your letters. And I got all kinds of crazy, insane letters on that blog. So I answered a lot of stuff there. That I, I eventually said, look, I'm spending all my time doing this crazy thing. Why don't I try to get paid for it? Okay, um, so the question I get frequently from wannabe advice columnists is how do you get this gig. And I always never respond to those questions because I don't want people to come and get my gig. So how did, <laughs> how did you get the gig? How do you, you, for those people out there who want to know how they can become professional advice columnists, Heather, how did you get to be one yourself? Well, actually the, the gig started, I was writing for the all on and off, um, the website, the all, are you familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. At all. It's, yeah. It's an awesome, crazy little website. I had written humor stuff for them. Um, and then one day I pitched, I said, you know, what I should be writing for you is an existential advice column. Just pay me a tiny bit and, <laughs> and I'll do it every week and it'll be funny and great. And he just wrote back and said, done, which is, you know, I mean, that's a little bit of a strange way to get a job. And, um, and, and I, let me just jump in here and say, that's not how it works. Very few people get their advice <laughs> column just by saying, I want to do it. And somebody says, yes, you, there, yeah. too, there are many, many more people out there who want to write advice columns than there are people willing to publish them. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the thing, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you have experience as a writer and people already know your work, then that helps. You know, it's, I think it's hard to just say, hey, I want to write an advice column. Here are some samples. People don't really want to read samples unless they know you from something else generally. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to, I think you have to cut your teeth as a writer first, because that's my path. But if I were, let's say I didn't want to write anything else but advice, what I really, I felt my true calling was to be an advice columnist. Um, I would say, uh, write for sample columns and send them to every single editor you can get whose name you can get your hands and, on. And, and start a blog. Um, Don't wait for anyone's permission. Like start an advice right. blog. Like you can... Yeah. Like you did. You were doing kind of an advice blog for a while and you, you uh, parlayed that to these gigs. And how did you make the jump from the all to New York Magazine? New York Magazine poached you? Yeah, New York Magazine came and lured me away with bigger money and more exposure. And I, being a you know, sad kind of writer person who's always scrapping for bigger and better, I said yes. Um, <laughs> and it's been great. I, I love New York Magazine. So I, you know, I was happy to make who, the leap. And um, who doesn't want to work for Adam Moss? Who's just yes, a genius exactly. editor. Now, uh, quickly, before we get to the calls, you can take a couple calls with us. Um, are you, you're a fan of the genre. I think all the people who wind up doing advice columns are fans of the genre. So I want you to name one advice columnist besides the one you're talking to whose work you admire. Um, I love Cheryl Strayed. Dear Sugar. And Yes, Dear Sugar. I was writing advice on my blog when Dear Sugar came to my attention and – I think she showed me how emotional and beautiful advice writing can actually be. I was writing kind of snarky, crazy stuff at the time um, that sort of veered into emotional territory here and there. Mm -hmm. But I think that she, what she did with Dear Sugar was she actually brought a, a real writer's sensibility and an essayist sensibility to the format so that it doesn't have to be just tell your in-laws to go fuck themselves. You know, exactly. <laughs> Although, you know, it does, it does have to be that every once in a while, but it, it doesn't only have to be that. And I completely agree with you. There's a column that uh, Cheryl wrote uh, as Dear Sugar called You Have to Take the Sully with the Sweet that I'm constantly sending to people who write me at Savage Love, which is just about how you get past, you know, an affair or the fear of an affair. It's a brilliant column. 
And if anybody out there who hasn't already uh, been exposed to Dear Sugar wants a taste of how brilliant Cheryl Strait can be as a columnist, look up Sully with Sweet Dear Sugar on Google and it pops right up. Now, now that we've talked about somebody that you like, who is an advice columnist whose work you despise? Besides, besides me. It can't, be, it can't be me either. I can't think of anyone I, just, <laughs> I despise. I mean, the thing is, I don't go out and read advice columns very often because – I, you know, when I You're was a TV critic, I did question. not read other TV criticism either. It's just sort of like you don't – you kind of want to believe that you're the, the, the queen of the universe and that you, you, know, you exist in this great bubble. That's exactly it. That's what I say every time we do the intro for this segment is all of us who write advice columns, we pretend we're the only one. For the most yeah, part. Well, we, we're, yeah, we're, we, are, we each are saving the universe on our own. You know, it's like it all depends on us. There's no Justice um, League. There's no Justice League of advice columnists. We're all solo. <laughs> we're all Batman. There should be. There should be, though. Because actually, you know, when I read your advice column, I think, God, these letters. You know, this is where I need to send all the letters I get that I say, Jesus Christ, I cannot fucking answer this in a million years. Because there are things that I get that I absolutely am not a good person to ask, you know. Um, and there are other kinds of things that I think Dear Prudence would be better at. Um, Cheryl Strait isn't writing her advice column anymore, but if she were, there are things that I think she would tackle beautifully in a way that I could never even touch. So, I mean, it's almost, we do need to have the Hall of Justice and have all the, you know, different forms of advice columnists there, and they can just get referred to the proper person. And we all need to wear tight spandex superhero costumes with capes. Definitely, and we need a monkey. And on that note, let's take some calls. Let's let's do some of this advice shit that we're we're known for. <laughs> Me, uh, with my two decades of experience, I feel like the granddaddy of advice columnists right now. And you with your cute toddler, two-year-old Aww. column. Let's do it. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old bisexual polyamorous woman living in a major West Coast city. Um, and I have a question about um, – the person that I've been sleeping with who recently got a tattoo. Um, this guy is awesome in the sack. We've had great sex and I really enjoy being with him. The last time that I saw him, he'd gotten a tattoo over his heart and the tattoo is of the yellow star of David that the Nazis forced the Jews to wear during World War II. Um, it's like the exact are with like the calligraphy and the word Jude in it and the right kind of shading and this guy you know has a history of being um uh, his family's Jewish and they all left Germany and some people were lost there and and I'm Jewish too but and we're not romantically involved in any way but I have like a huge problem with this tattoo I, I think that everybody should be able to do whatever they want to do with their own bodies but it was so distracting that the last time I was having sex with him, I had to put my hand over it so that I wouldn't see it. It was like I was fucking him and I was like, sex, 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 Holocaust, sex, 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 Holocaust. And it was just really upsetting. And I know that I cannot have sex with him again, even if he leaves his shirt on, because I know that that'll be there. And it's just disturbing to me. But I wonder if I should tell him, because I can only imagine that other people that he hooks up with are going to have this reaction. And I wonder if using the campsite rule, I should tell him that he has done this thing that could offend other people when 
he sees their bodies or just makes them uncomfortable. I wasn't offended by it, just made uncomfortable. And it really breaks the mood, man. It sucks too because he's super hot. Anyway, I'm looking for advice on how I can let this guy down easy or if I should just do the girly fadeaway. You know, it's a funny thing. I was listening to this call thinking that there are a lot of gay guys running around out there in the world with pink triangle tattoos, which was what the Nazis put on gay people in concentration camps. It's the pink triangle. That's what they forced gay prisoners to wear. And it has been so thoroughly and completely reappropriated that when you see it on someone, that tattoo or on a poster, or on a T-shirt, you don't think Holocaust. You think gay guy or gay or, you know, silence equals death. You don't think – Concentration camp, but the yellow star with the with the word Jew in it in the German script uh, on your over his heart. I don't blame her for breaking up with him. That's creeptastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the way that it's used and has been used, yeah, absolutely. I just the the question I had that that popped into my head was: Is he reappropriating it? Is he reappropriating a symbol of oppression? in order to give it less power? And is that his personal crusade? Or is he just a complete clueless idiot? <laughs> you know? I'm, pretty, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure he's reappropriating it. You know, I've seen other people kind of do the big fuck you, um, you know, by saying that, you know, even, you know, visiting a concentration camp or going to the, the beer hall in Munich where Hitler planned his you know, worked on Mein Kampf and having a beard to say, fuck you, you're dead and everything you stood for has been wiped from the face of the earth and here I am and fuck you, yeah. right? And it can be yeah. this like flipping off statement of survival, but it is, I think, so, uh, triggering isn't a word I like to use very often, but that would be triggering, I think, for a lot of the Jewish people he might want to sleep with. And tattoos are forbidden in Judaism. You know, the thing is, Almost anything could be triggering in a tattoo on the front of your body, right? I mean, there are things you don't want to see. I can imagine, like, having sex with a guy who has a lot of naked women on the front of his body. Yeah, that, right? would, bother, that would bother me, too, a lot. <laughs> I could not do that. If Terry came home with a giant vulva tattooed on his chest, I would, that would be, it would be over. <laughs> or on his back. Yeah, bad. But I, but I feel like, you know... The question is this, she, because she, what she wants to know is, should I tell him, hey, dumbass, that no one is going to like this. You're going to have run into a lot of problems with this. You know, rethink what you've got, you know, emblazoned on your chest. Or should she just do the girly fadeaway, as she, as she put it? It's a little too late to rethink it. It's a tattoo. Uh, there is tattoo removal, but it doesn't work very well with color tattoos. Tattoo removal works really well with black ink. Not so well with colored ink. So even if he goes and gets Jew and the outline removed, he's still going to have a giant yellow star in his chest. Yeah. Well, he could possibly get it turned into something else, like a pretty sun or a, you know, a, a star. big lemon. He, he should have a huge Christmas tree <laughs> tattooed underneath it. <laughs> yeah, which is a uh, maybe he's reappropriating something else. I think that um, I feel like she doesn't, um, because she never asked him, what he was trying to do with the tattoo. Uh, it seems 
kind of like, why would she call him up and tell him what was wrong with the tattoo? You know, mm-hmm. if she had a conversation with him and she was honest with him and said, this isn't working for me. I don't understand what this is about. If he told her what it was about and she kind of felt like it was more reasonable, what his, you know, if his reasoning made any kind of sense at all to her, she might not have the same reaction to seeing it. Um, well, and there's also the option of turning the light off. Well, come on. I mean, nobody has a tattoo uh, in the dark or everybody is completely covered in tattoos in the dark. It kind of sounds, <laughs> it kind of sounds like she can't get it out of her mind no matter what she does. You know, and she doesn't want to wear a shirt. This actually makes me think of something I'm I'm constantly pivoting (laughs) to when I give people advice about seemingly random stuff is that one of the things we look for in a partner is good judgment. And this is evidence of really poor judgment. And I think poor judgment is a turnoff that we don't talk about very often. Like if you're fucking somebody, you want them to have pretty good judgment because you're putting your physical and you know, emotional safety often in their hands. If you're going to be partnered with somebody, you want them to have good judgment because you don't want them to drive you into debt and ruin or burn the house down or, you know, accidentally drown the kids. You want good judgment. And this screams bad judgment. And that's a turnoff. I can see that. But I also think that in a conversation with him, he might, if he was a really intelligent person and a persuasive person, and he had a very clear idea of what he was doing with it and why, and, and the purpose that it served to shock people with it from the art artist's kind of point of view, from an artistic point of view, you know, I feel like there's, there are people who would understand and appreciate the kind of the provocation of it. Possibly. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would be, a little bit wary of the, you know, the, <laughs> you wouldn't want the person who appreciates the provocation to be, a, you know, secretly a Nazi or a white supremacist <laughs> or an anti-Semite, you know, I mean, that's the problem with, you know, it's a sticky kind of thing. But I do think that there are people who would, I mean, if, if he were convincing in like uh, communicating what he was trying to do. I don't know. I mean, and, I, and it's, I it is legit to ask him about it. Like tattoos are often conversations. I don't think you get a tattoo and then you, you get to be aggrieved when people ask you what your tattoo means or why you got it or what it, it's symbolic of, because it's a, it's a look at me and have a conversation with me. It's a, you know, it's a object art slapped onto your body and it's a conversation starter. And we both agree that she should, if not tell him, inform him like terrible, never going to fuck you again. And this is going to cause problems in your life. I agree with you. I'm on your side. We are in in agreement that she should just say, hey, what is that about? Sure. If she wants to sleep with him again, if she secretly... The thing is, I got a sense that she secretly sort of feels like he's a creepy person anyway or an idiot anyway, and she was already sort of on her way to being done with him, and this thing was like uh, the final you know, nail in the coffin. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old male from the Midwest. I've been divorced for about a year, almost 14 months. Um, over that 14 months, I've dated many women online through Match.com and Harmony. Um, I've had some success. I've uh, met some women with who've met my my sexual needs, which my ex-wife did not. Um, one woman even let me fulfill my kink by uh, letting me fist her, and um, that was about the greatest experience you know, sexual experience I've ever had. She loved it as well. Uh, we didn't match as far as emotionally. And I broke it off. Um, since then, I've had a few more sexual relationships. Um, some of them were, um, they love to uh, give me head, which is another thing I love. And and uh, I broke it off with them just because I haven't really, I feel like I haven't met anybody 
who meets all of my needs emotionally, you know, physically. But mostly, I feel like emotionally, I haven't met somebody who fulfills all my needs. I'm a very hardworking person. Um, I have ambition. I'm college educated. I work at a hospital. And I'm just curious if I should be concerned about my pickiness because some of these women didn't have any, I would call, quote-unquote, real reasons to break up with them. But it was just some things that were kind of turnoffs, and I don't want to lead them on. So, you know, a couple of hints of, oh, you know, I'm not that into them. I would just break it off. And um, I find myself going to strip clubs where I can get a handout for $50 or, you know, a blowjob for $100, what have you. But at the same time, you know, I'm looking online still for that proper woman. But a lot of the women online, you know, don't want, you know, one night stands, don't want, you know, just uh, friends with benefits, that sort of thing, which I'm actually totally fine with. Um, I'm more interested in finding a probably sexual partner that turns into a possible long-term relationship than I am looking for, you know, a wife and then finding out later that they don't have the sexual needs that I have because my libido is, you know, so strong and, and sex is so important to me. And my sexual relationship is so important to me, especially after, you know, the failed marriage where we just were not sexually compatible. So I'm just curious if it's okay the path I'm on where I'm breaking up with some women where, you know, we are pretty close to a match, especially sexually, but there has some big turnoffs when it comes to emotionally or habitually. And it's okay that I find myself going to these, you know, strip clubs where I can get off, you know, for a certain amount of money. And um, if it presents a deep-seated problem that I have or if it's just part of being a guy who's horny and looking for the right person. Okay, well, I'm just, I'm really swooning. It does, this whole <laughs> picture just sounds so romantic, you know? It reminds me of Beauty, uh, Sleeping Beauty when Aurora is walking through the woods and she meets the prince and she starts singing, I know you, you fisted me once upon a dream. Wow, I didn't it's see just, that version of the movie. Oh, you didn't? No. You didn't. It's beautiful. A, we, lot of, a lot of us girls dream of meeting uh, of our fisting prince one day. Not, um, that, not that we want to shame fisters out there. Like he, he found I, a woman who enjoyed it. That was her thing, too. And they, you know, there are women I, who You know what? Fisting. I'm making a joke. And, and here's the deal. Here's the thing. My my feeling about him is that he hasn't been allowed to express his needs and desires for a while, and now he's conflicted about how to ask for exactly what he wants. Mm-hmm. I don't get the impression that he's being completely honest with the people he's meeting about what he really wants. Now, granted, if you're in a situation where someone agrees to be fisted, Clearly, there's a conversation that happens before that. So maybe he's doing a better job of that than I think he is. A conversation that starts with, remove your watch. <laughs> oh, there's, I would think the conversation might be a long conversation. But <laughs> hopefully, I, hopefully. <laughs> but remove your watch better be in there somewhere if you're old-fashioned and wear a Have watch. Have you washed your hands? How big is your, are your knuckles? My take on listening to him is, you know, it sounds like he's exploring. He's having fun. I hope he's being conscientious about the sex workers that he patronizes so that he's not seeing anyone who's sex working or doing sex work under duress and not of their own free will. And everybody who patronizes sex workers should be conscientious about that. And most of the ones that I hear from are uh, all the letters I get from people who want to see sex workers are always bringing up. And how do I make sure that this person is doing it of their own free will? Um, but the, the only thing that I thought might be going on is – 
there are these crazy sexual things he wants to do. He was shamed for them, as you said, Heather, in his previous relationship. And he's finding women who want to do them, but he's not finding anyone that he wants to date in this pool of women who want to do the dirty sex things he wants to do. And I, you know, sometimes what happens is people will do the dirty things that they want to do and then consciously or subconsciously think, well, that person who does those dirty things couldn't be a good partner because they're a dirty thing doer. And so there yeah. are the people who I have dirty sex with and then there are the people I could see myself with long term. And the, the bullshit in the heart of that is you're a dirty sex doer too. And so if you're disqualifying women who are enjoying the things that you enjoy for relationships, then why aren't you disqualifying yourself? He did say proper too. He said, yes, I, I do want to have a proper relationship. <laughs> and so these women he's having these brief encounters with and these sexually adventurous encounters, I think he should risk getting to know better before he latches on to some personal habit or emotional trait that he thinks disqualifies them from being in a relationship. Because what's probably going on is he's on the hunt for a disqualifier. Like, oh, we did these dirty things together. I still struggle with shame, whether I can articulate that or not. And I'm going to scrutinize her for a reason that I don't have to see her again. Because it is sometimes a mortifying yeah. thing to be looked at for who you really are by someone when you're not comfortable with who you really are, which is why so many people have an easier time disclosing their darkest fantasies, their most secret sexual interests to strangers, to sex workers, people they're never, ever going to see again because those people are never going to have to look at you again. You're not going to see yourself reflected in their eyes. And so uh, that's all I would say to the caller. Like, make sure you're not doing that. Otherwise, you're just out there churning through women until you meet one, hopefully, who's as sexually adventurous and crazy as you are that you could see yourself in a relationship with. But be careful you're not discarding women that you could be in a relationship with because of shame. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think that part of owning your desires and your needs, right, is being completely honest about how you feel. I think that this man is looking for love and for sex together. I don't think he just, he boils it down to, I want my sexual needs met, but I'm getting the impression that he wants a connection with someone and he's feeling disappointed with that. And he's wondering if there's something wrong with him that he wants his sexual needs met first and foremost. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, look, what's really important to me, first of all, is to make sure that we're sexually compatible. And then I want to see if a relationship can form out of that. I do think that he is in some kind of pretending or acting or distant mode when he goes into these sexual situations. If you're not saying up front, look, sex is really important to me. This is what I want. You know, this is the most important thing. First of all, I need to know that we're compatible sexually before I get more involved. I mean, that's a completely legitimate thing. There are plenty of reasonable people who will be absolutely that will appeal to them. But from there, if you have these interactions with people and you don't feel like you're bringing your full self to the table and you're kind of pretending to be a guy who's interested in order to get the sex you want, but you're not sure about the person otherwise, as long as you're kind of acting a part, you're never going to really see, you're never going to feel anything for another person. You know, the, the feeling, the emotion in the situation that might naturally arise. Whereas when you fully show up and say, this is what I want, this is who I am, you know, and you're present to the other person, you have the, you're opening up the potential to not just have a great sexual kinky relationship of your dreams, but also that you're letting in some emotion and you're letting the other person in and you can feel feelings for them. I think he's cutting himself off from his feelings and he's treating women who he meets online as similar to sex workers, as people who, this is what I want from them. This is the need I'm fulfilling. I like the fact that they blow me. I like the fact that I get to fist them, but maybe there's something wrong with me. 
that conflict, that inner conflict around that, once that's cleared up, he can show up and it's not a matter of, it's not just a, an exchange, you know, like commerce. It's mm-hmm. more of a, I'm here, this is who I am, you know, being present to the other person. And then you can really feel and see the other person. And I think the sexual experiences will become even more amazing at when he feels like he's not pretending or acting or not fully showing up in those situations. Heather Haverleski, she writes the Ask Polly Advice column for New York Magazine's The Cut. Find it online. Find it in the magazine on newsstands everywhere. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And good luck with your baby advice column. <laughs> go, go, go. Hey, Dan. 28, single, uh, white, heteroflexible male. I feel like a lot of men watch transgender porn. This fascination with trans porn has probably been ongoing since I was in my early teens. Uh, I attribute it to having a fairly strong desire for dick, which my last girlfriend couldn't really deal with. I uh, wasn't really ready to make any sort of uh, concessions to allow me to follow any such desires, unfortunately. These needs kind of have me at odds with the dating scene right now, uh, what it is I want out of a partner. I'm really attracted to men and have no interest in uh, dating one, so that's kind of out of the question. I like the idea of dating a trans woman, but I don't want them to feel like there's some sort of fetishization of mine. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's, I want to be with a woman, have kids, all that jazz. I would note that I've never dated a trans person, so perhaps that would change my perspective. So the question for me right now is how do I better incorporate my lust for dick, cock, into my life going forward? There was a moment in your call when you said, I'm really attracted to men, but I have no interest in dating men. Did you say, I'm really attracted to men or I am not attracted to men? Oh, uh, sorry. I'm rarely attracted to men. Rarely. It sounded like I'm really yeah. attracted to men, but not <laughs> as you're dating them. Rarely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Hence the me mumbling. lust for cock, but uh, a preference for those cocks to be attached to trans women. Exactly. Yeah. You deserve all sorts of praise, first of all, uh, because you use all the proper words. You, you, don't, you describe trans porn as trans porn, trans women. You don't say what so many straight guys who are into trans porn or trans women say. You don't use tranny. You don't use shemale. And for those of you who are now upset that I just use tranny and shemale, please Google use mention difference. Thank you very much before you blow up. Um, I'm not using the words. I'm mentioning them while we have this conversation and praising you for not using them because we don't use those words anymore. Okay. Great, uh, but later on, I actually have to fault you. I have to to jump on you when you say that you want to be with a woman and have children. And trans women are women, and you can have a family with a trans woman. You can adopt. You can do surrogacy. It's possible to have children with a trans woman, and a trans right, woman is yeah. a woman. Uh, so the distinction yeah. you make between the trans woman you're attracted to and a desire to be with a woman when you grow up is a false one. So I have to throw glitter on you for that. Praise you for. Not using the words you're not supposed to use, but throw glitter on you for that distinction between trans women and women. So your question is, how do you incorporate your love for dick uh, into, you know, your desire for cock? And and there's a lot of guys like that out there, a lot of straight guys out there. It's not gay men who watch trans porn or patronize trans sex workers. It's invariably straight guys, straight identified guys or, you know, mostly straight guys, heteroflexible guys who are Mm -hmm. into dick but not into dudes. And so – Dicks without dudes is the secret. And now it sounds like this screwed up your past, your, your last relationship. You you told your girlfriend about this, or she found it out? No, she was she was aware from the get go. But obviously, like when the relationship first started, we were pretty head over heels about each other, and it never really came up until until maybe like a year, year and a half into it. She was aware of like 
uh, like some of my sexual desires, but until for not until like a year, year and a half later was, was I maybe more forceful about bringing them up or kind of seeking them out or wanting, wanting um, to realize it. Yeah, exactly. And she wasn't down with that. She was not unfortunately, or unfortunately she was really good about it. Um, but, uh, she was not really willing to make those concessions to kind of like allow me to kind of seek that out. Or Have you ever been with a, a, a trans woman? Have you ever been with a dick? Yeah. 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 Multiple times. Yeah. Many times. And you've never considered dating any of these women that you've been with? Um, I've only really ever been with one trans woman mm-hmm. and then I sought out like a, like a trans sex worker, uh, once before as well. So, well, the, you know, if you go to OkCupid and you go to other online dating sites, there are lots of trans people out there, uh, looking for love, looking even just for, for sex. And you, you say your word, mm-hmm. you don't want to make trans women feel like you're fetishizing them. Or yeah, that's always a concern. But yeah. but there are people out there who are who are volunteering to be objectified. People out there who are mm-hmm. saying, "Go ahead, fetishize me." People who enjoy, you know, yeah. who just want to have no strings attached sex, and people who yeah. get off on being appreciated for this one very unique and special quality. There are people who don't want that, and you shouldn't like run up to somebody who you know. If you're an amputee fetishist, you shouldn't harass amputee fetishists on the street about your kink. But if there's amputee fetishists who are advertising themselves as you may come and get me, like I'm interested in interacting with you, then of course you may approach and you may approach trans people who are, you know, nominating themselves for not just dating, but also uh, no strings attached objectification. Some trans people are very comfortable with being fetishized. Not all trans people are, and we shouldn't default to fetishizing them, but you can find them and they're out there. Your question though, is how do I incorporate my love of Dick or my love of cock going forward? And you're going to, you know, you're going to have a slightly harder road to hoe because if you want to be in a relationship with a cis woman, but you'd also like to be able to indulge and explore and have, you know, you know, have your cis wife and girlfriend and cock too, that's a a negotiation (laughs) that you're going to have to have with the women that you date. Right. That you're not interested in being monogamous, that this is something that you always will want to pursue and you will do it safely and consensually. And the trick is you're you know your best bet would be to find a woman who is turned on by that too, not a woman yeah, who's going to put I mean, up with it for you, but a woman who might want to watch yeah. you suck a cock. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's obviously the ideal uh, situation probably for me. They're out or there, to, or to date, or to date a trans woman as well, which is yeah, to date a trans woman and to keep yeah. an open mind. There are trans women out mm-hmm. there who have families, who have children, right? That is totally an option for you. But also, you know, I get letters all the time from women who, some of whom are unhappy because they want to watch their husband or boyfriend give a blowjob and their husband or boyfriend has no interest in blowjobs or dick or same-sex anything or trans women or or anything. And those women, they should have been out there looking for guys like you before they married or partnered (laughs) with that guy. And the internet exists now. The internet is this amazing sorting mechanism that can bring two grains of sand together from the opposite ends of the world who are a match. Not a perfect match. No two people are perfect for each other. But your unique set of interests and and, and requirements, there's a woman out there that wants that too. Many, many women out there who want what you're offering. Mm -hmm. So – you need to do a shift in your head where this isn't like you're, something you're going to ask future girlfriends or your wife, if she says to put up with, 
but this is Yahtzee and Christmas morning and a special gift that you can give to a woman who is herself turned on by the idea of her husband or boyfriend being a cocksucker. Yeah, I definitely haven't thought of it that way, actually. So that's a, kind of uh, a new light, and uh, kind of exciting. Get the to the internet. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all over it. Yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can I can do that. I'm, I can do that. I mean, you know, I hate to use that old phrase, let your freak flag fly, because I don't want. You know, I'm not saying that your desires are freakish in any way, but you know, the reason <clears> that you should let your freak flag fly is because you will attract the right freaks. You will attract like-minded freaks. You will attract your people. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's been something I've been like a bit, maybe a bit more defensive or kind of shielded about expressing those desires and being like honest and open about it. Uh, especially at least in like a public realm, like on a dating site or anything like that. So I'm trying to, I'm like doing my best to like be a little bit more open about it now. Who gives a shit what other people think? If yeah. it interferes yeah. with you being happy and having in your life, the things that will give you joy, that will give you joy. Right. And this would give you joy. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Sam. I appreciate that. Sure thing. Okay, great. Bye. Hi, this is a comment on the sleep eating dude. Jesus, lads, lock the inside of your bedroom door. He can't get at the fridge then. Hi, I'm calling about episode 428 about the night-eating boyfriend. I think you were kind of unfair to the roommate in that situation. I think it's totally legitimate that she wants her food replaced. And um, this guy and this girl need to take responsibility for this destruction that he's causing. And they should be so willing to pay her back. And I also think that it's a pretty big deal problem and that he should have warned her before sleeping over her house so they could maybe be, like, prepared. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in regards to the caller whose partner um, has issues with the fact that she can't can't get off through vaginal penetration. Um, I thought your advice was great. Um, I also think that one thing that could be stressed is that, you know, women really need to tell their partners who have this issue that it's just not true and that the majority of women cannot get off this way. I've had partners time and time again put it on me as if it was my problem and that, you know, all of their other partners have. So I think that women need to stop faking it and just stand up for themselves and tell them that this is not my problem. It's not a problem. And there are many other ways that we get off that don't include their dicks. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Coming up in Portland, Oregon, we're going to have a live taping of the Savage Lovecast on Friday, February 13th, Valentine's Day Eve. We're calling that show Unlucky in Love. It's at Revolution Hall, a new space. For more information and for tickets, go to portlandmercury.com slash unlucky love. February 13th, join us in Portland for live taping. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow our guest this week, Heather Havrileski, on Twitter at HHavrileski. That's H-H-A-V-R-I-L-E-S-K-Y. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.